want to join with the other brethren this morning in welcoming you to the service uh, here. We are especially appreciative of your, of your presence. We hope that uh, the service thus far, the singing, uh, the prayers have been uplifting and edifying. And it's our prayer this morning also that what we look at from a scriptural point of view will also uplift you, build you up, uh, edify you, and strengthen your faith. Uh, as you may know, if you've been here some this week, we've been talking about a case for the inspiration of Scripture. And we've looked at several different aspects of, of evidences, physical evidence. We've looked at uh, manuscripts. We've looked at um, science. We've looked at a historical view of Scripture. We've looked at all of those different things outside of the Scripture that back up what the Scripture says. That help prove to us that the things that we have within the Holy Scriptures are true, are accurate, are reliable and can be counted on in our lives. This morning and this afternoon, I want to go a little more inward to the text. We'll still use some uh, outside sources and look at some things from outside, but I want to focus in this morning on the power of the message. Because to me, one of the most uh, powerful, I guess to use that term, evidences about the Scriptures is the power that the Scriptures has to change lives, to change belief systems, to help people, to help society, to make the world a better place. And to me, if the scriptures contain truths and principles that can help uh, in our lives, in our world, in our society, in the things that we see around us, and the things that we experience, and they make the world better, to me, that's powerful evidence that the scriptures are true and right. The scriptures have a certain consistency in the message. The message that's presented within it is a powerful message. A message that if you're a Christian here this morning, you come in believing. The message of the gospel of Christ. The message of how that Christ came, He lived. We talked about some of the external proofs of the existence of Jesus already. He did come. He did live. He did teach the things that He taught. He did wind up on that cross at Calvary, giving His life for all of mankind. And there's power in that message. The scripture also contains prophetic information and foretells futuristic events. There are many different prophecies of Jesus Christ himself. And we're going to look at some this morning. And those prophecies that were written hundreds of years before, there's power in that. Because at the end of it, we see the conclusion. We see the fulfillment of those things. And then we also see how great a length that some people will go to for this message and for the power that it holds. And that's what I want to look at with you for a few minutes this morning. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This holy scripture that we have is a powerful is a powerful tool. It's quick, it's powerful, sharper than any sword. It'll divide, it'll uh, pierce, it'll cause the reader, as he's reading, as he is convicted perhaps of some things, it will cause the reader to look and examine himself and to want to perhaps change some things. The Word of God is powerful. It's a message that's consistent. We looked at this in the first uh, on that Thursday night in detail, but I want to remind you of some things about the Bible. The Bible is actually 66 books written during a span of about 1,500 years. It's a collection of those 66 documents. 
was written by 40 different authors from various walks of life in three languages. It was written in many different places on three different continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. It was written under many different circumstances, some peaceful circumstances, some times of war, etc. And its writers had different purposes for writing. And yet in all of that, there's a common theme that we find in Scripture. From the Old Testament all the way through to the New. There's one story that's told. Now there's a lot of subplots. There's a lot of other things that the Scripture deals with. But there's one story that the Scriptures consistently tell. And it's the repeated sinful rebellion of mankind and the grace, love, and mercy of God that was extended in sending His Son, Jesus. And that's the message that we see from Genesis to Revelation. Hence the reason Romans 15.4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we might through patience and comfort of the Scriptures have hope. Hope is given to us from the Scriptures because we see the message, the important, powerful message that is consistent from beginning to end. We talked a little bit Friday night about a case for creation. Once you know the Scripture never contradicts itself in talking about God creating the heavens and the earth. Moses wrote in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. John wrote in his book, in chapter 1 and verse 3, All things were made by Him. Mark quoted Jesus in chapter 10 and verse 6 and said, But from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. And the Scriptures never contradict that. And I want you to think about the fact that if you believe that, And if you'll accept that the Scripture is true and that God really did create everything as the consistent message shows, that's a powerful message that will change the way you view society. It will change the way you view the world around you. It will change your life. There's a message of sin and of the consequence of sin that's found in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, we find the story of the first two human beings that God created, Adam and Eve, And they're approached by Satan, right? And he tempts them with the fruit of that tree that they know they're not supposed to eat. That's the one rule God had given them in the garden, right? They're not supposed to eat of that fruit. And they say, God said if we eat of this fruit, we'll die. Satan said, you'll not surely die. Actually, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God's. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. The scripture, of course, records that Eve looked at that fruit. She saw that it was good. It was pleasant to the eyes, good for food would make her wise. So she took it, she ate it, she gave to Adam. He took it, he ate it. And that was the first sin recorded in the history of mankind. The first disobedient act against the creating God, the all-powerful God. And what happened to those uh, first two people? Genesis 3 verse 24 said, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. They were no longer guaranteed life, but in fact guaranteed death as a result of that sin. And all the other scriptures that we see agree with this. Isaiah wrote several hundred years later in chapter 59 and verse 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. One of the consistent messages of Scripture is that when we disobey the Creator of the universe, the all-powerful, almighty God, There's consequences for that. And the biggest consequence is we're separated from Him. And we have no relationship with Him. That sin has caused a chasm, a gulf, to span between us. Paul agreed in Romans 5 and verse 12 where he wrote, Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. 
And I want you to know this morning that if you accept this message and you accept that this is true, this has power. Because if you accept this and you begin to examine your life, I think I can probably tell you what you'll find because I know what I find when I examine my life without Christ. And that's sin. That's disobedience. It's things that I've done wrong. It's things I'm ashamed of. Things I feel guilt for. The Scriptures record that all of us have sinned. And so I believe that if you're doing a self-examination this morning, you're going to find that you too, without God, without Christ, have sin. And that will provoke you, hopefully, to change something because of the power that's held within that message. I want you to know, though, the consequence is not the end of the story. There's a sacrifice for sin that's part of that consistent theme that we find in Scripture. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah, speaking of that Savior that would come, that would take our sins and our iniquities upon himself, and would give himself as a sacrifice for us. Paul mentioned that being Christ in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. And he said, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He said, we became righteous through Him. He took our sin upon Himself. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.24, Who His own self bare our sins in His own body on that tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. You see, these writers never contradicted each other. One of them didn't say, Jesus came to take your sin upon Himself, and the other said, well, this is what you have to do to remove the sin yourself. There's no disagreement. There's no inconsistency. The theme is constant. There's a consequence for sin, and there's one way to remove that consequence. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus would go on, and He would give Himself on that cross, as we talked about last night. The earth shook. Darkness came over the earth. Rocks were split. The power that was held there in that moment was only one part of the immense power that the gospel holds and that the message of Christ holds. The other half of that power was found three days later. And that's what today and the holiday that's celebrated today represents. Christ's resurrection. You see, Christ could have gone to that spectacular death for all of mankind, but if He'd not risen from the grave three days later, we wouldn't be here. And there'd be no reason to be here. Paul himself wrote that if the resurrection had never happened, all of this is for nothing. But because Christ did raise from the grave three days later, there's power in that message that you and I too can be immortal like Him. That's what the writers of Scripture say. Psalm 16 and verse 10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. David wrote that well before the time of Christ, but prophesied about the fact that Jesus would not remain in the grave, but would be raised. And John, quoting Jesus, speaking the words of Jesus, so before Jesus had actually gone through this, Jesus himself said, chapter 2, 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You see, Jesus Himself knew what He was going to do. He knew that He was going to die, and He knew that three days later He would raise from the grave. And Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day. 
If you accept the message and the consistency of the message and you say, well, if all the things we look at from Scripture are true and I accept that the message then too must be true, then there's power in that message. There's power in the message that Jesus came forth from the grave. Because no ordinary man, no ordinary person could have caused themselves to do that. No ordinary person could have caused themselves to raise literally from the dead for a immense, huge, weighted stone to be rolled out of the way for angels to appear to people and say, why are you looking for a man here in a graveyard who's alive? And then for Jesus to appear to His disciples and to those following Him. No ordinary man could have done that. But Jesus was not an ordinary man. And if you accept that the Scriptures are true, there's power in that message. Because the promise is given to us that we too can have a resurrection, just as Jesus did. We're told from Scripture in part of that message that Christ is going to return. We know that sometime after He was resurrected, He ascended up to the Father and He left this earth, right? And ever since then, we've been operating under a system of of watching and waiting, essentially. Waiting for that time when Christ is going to come back. Matthew 25 and verse 31, Jesus said, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him. Jesus told uh, the people that were following and listening to Him that He would return again. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised His disciples that He'd be back. That He wasn't abandoning them, He wasn't leaving them alone, but that He would be coming back together, all of those that believe in Him and that have followed Him and obeyed Him, to bring them with Him to heaven. And Paul records in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Of course, we know that then those of us that are alive and remaining will uh, be gathered together and meet Him in the air. That's the consistent message that's told in Scripture. And if you believe that the Scriptures are inspired and you accept the fact that they're true and what they tell, then there's power in that message. Because if Christ returns today, and you know as part of the consistent message that there's a consequence for sin, There's a consequence for not having Christ cover that sin. And if Christ returns today, I would ask you this morning where you stand before Him. I would ask you this morning what Christ would think of you and whether or not you would be counted among those obedient, faithful believers that go to meet Him and return with Him to heaven or not. Because if you accept the message and you accept the truth of the Scripture then there's power behind this. And it ought to provoke you to think. And it ought to provoke you to see whether or not you may need to change some things in your life. The eternal judgment is kind of the end of the story. It's the end of the message. At the end of the day, that's where all of us will find ourselves. One day, death will find you. If it doesn't, it will be because Christ returns first. But if Christ doesn't return in your lifetime, death will find you. Any of you who have been around for a while know that death is a part of life. And that death happens. And we don't like it. It's sorrowful. It's not a fun thing, but it happens. And if it's going to happen to all of us, 
then all of us have got to put the thought and the preparation into how we're going to face the next life, how we're going to face eternal judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 25 and verse 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Jesus talked about two different destinations for people. One that was a paradise that would be heaven, that would be the reward for those that were faithful followers of Him. And the other that would be eternal destruction and damnation for those who didn't. That message is consistent. In Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 it says, as, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. You see, after our death on earth, we'll be there. We'll face it. The judgment will be here. So Christ was once suffered once suffered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Those that are looking for Christ, those that are eagerly anticipating it as faithful followers, are looking for that salvation that accompanies them. And that was written uh, perhaps by Paul. Some attribute the book of Hebrews to Paul. Uh, technically, it's considered an unknown author. But Paul backs that up in 2 Corinthians 5.10 when he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And I want to tell you, if you accept that the Scriptures are inspired and accept that the Scriptures are true, you accept that that consistent message would only be consistent if it came from God, then there's power in this message. Because the judgment is coming. And where will you stand? Will you stand in that group of faithful followers that Jesus can look at and say, Well done, now good and faithful servant? Or will you stand in that group of people who didn't accept Him and didn't follow Him? Who did not obey the gospel of Christ? Who are destined for that eternal destruction? The message is consistent. Not once do these writers contradict each other in the story that the Scriptures tell. 2 Peter 1 and verse 21 says, The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I think we can see that. If you'll truly study the Scriptures, I think you'll see the common theme that's there. Disagreement and contradiction comes when the will of man is involved, but where it is absent, unity can shine. And I want you to consider it like this. If we asked ten contemporary authors to write about one particular subject right now, Today, we said, all of you write about this, whatever subject that was that you, that you wanted it to be. Would they agree? Would all ten of those viewpoints be the same? Would all ten of those viewpoints tell the same story and preach the same message? He'd say, certainly not. You'd have ten different people with ten different ideas, with ten different personalities, with ten different things and backgrounds and environments and all of that that would persuade or that would sway what they write and what they write about that subject. And yet 40 authors from three different continents with various backgrounds under various circumstances in three languages in a span of over 1,500 years wrote 66 books addressing hundreds of subjects and not once was the common theme contradicted. And to me, there's power in that. There's power in the message that the Scriptures hold. John R.W. Scott or Stott, in the book Understanding the Bible, said, There is indeed a wide variety of human authors and themes in the Bible, yet behind these there lies a single divine author with a single unifying theme. And I hope you can see that this morning. The message that the, the Scriptures tell is consistent. It's also a prophetic one. And I mentioned 
a couple of things related to Jesus already in prophecy. But I want us to look for just a minute at some of the prophecies that the Scriptures hold about Jesus. Because I think some of this can be very interesting and and eye-opening when we consider how Jesus, if He was just an ordinary man, could have fulfilled some of these prophecies that were foretold about Him. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13, Samuel was speaking to David there, and he said, I will set up thy seed after thee. Samuel is telling David that the king, and at the end of that verse 13, he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Samuel is telling David that one day there would come a king whose kingdom would be established forever, eternally, and that king would be from David's seed. Well, guess what? In Matthew 1 and verse 1, we find the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in fact, if you trace the history of Jesus, you'll find that he came as a direct descendant of David, just as the prophet foretold before. Now, if Jesus were just an ordinary man, or if he were a fake, or if he were someone trying to act like he was the Messiah, the Christ, to gain popularity, to gain followers, to gain fame, whatever the motivation may have been for him, I'm not sure the end result of what happened to him even makes sense for him to have been a fake. I don't know why a fake would take it all the way to to being put to death for it. But let's just say, even if Jesus was trying to just fake it, how do you fake your lineage? You know, like it or not, I'm a Fleming. You know, whether you consider that a good thing or a bad thing, I am who I am and I can't help it. I come from the line that I come from. You know, my father is who he is. My grandfather is who he is. I didn't pick them. I was, I was blessed with them. We'll put it that way in case the story gets back to him. I was blessed with them. But you're the same way. You come from the line that you come from and had no control over that. And neither could Jesus. So if Jesus was a fake, he just happened to be lucky enough to be born of the right lineage to say, hey, maybe, maybe I could do this, right? The scriptures record that he would be born in Bethlehem. In Micah 5 verse 2 said, But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall be, shall come, shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. You know, Bethlehem was a little, tiny, little spot in the expanse uh, of, of area uh, that's covered in scripture. A little, tiny, little town that would have been a very, very random prediction. You know, if you're going to make a prediction that you're not really sure of, you ought to pick a large place, you know, with a lot of area, with a lot of potential for something to happen. You know, you say, he'll be born in northwest Texas. You know, that's a large area, and you could theoretically... But you pick one little, tiny little spot, and you say, that's where it's happening. It'd be amazing for that to happen, but it did. Matthew 2 verse 1 said, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know, no historical source, no tradition, no outside secular source has ever or will ever disprove that that's where Jesus was born. Now, when it comes to Jesus' birth... Let's look at it honestly. I'm not going to present anything that's false. When it comes to Jesus' birth, there's not a whole lot of external things. If you consider it from a historical point of view, though, Jesus hadn't done anything yet. 
He's, he's being born. All the things that we've looked at from history, and they happened when Jesus was already working and, and meeting people and teaching and being crucified and things were happening. And there's a reason why there's writings about those things and there's evidence about those things because Jesus was working. Jesus was a little newborn baby at this point. So consider that, but consider that there's nothing that contradicts this either. There's nothing that proves otherwise. And the scriptures record that he was born in that little small town and nobody once again, can control where they're born. It would have just had to have been an amazing stroke of luck. He was prophesied to be born of a virgin. In Isaiah 7 and verse 14, the prophet said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this one is truly spectacular because nobody else in the history of mankind has or since has been born of a virgin, right? Jesus is the only one. This is the one that that truly narrows it to one person and one person only. Because you say Bethlehem, okay, as tiny as that was, there were a few people born in Bethlehem, right? It could have been some different people. But Jesus was the only one. Now, skeptics, critics can look at that all day long and say, yeah, but we don't know if that's really true. Mary could have been lying, You know, Mary very well could have been with a man. Scripture could be recording it wrong. All of that. Well, if you still, after all of the evidence we've talked about this week, and all of the other evidence that exists out there that you can do the research on and look, if you still are questioning the little details of things that much after all the proof that the Bible is true, and just your excuse is, well, maybe Mary was just lying. And I want to tell you, I think you're probably... You're probably just not wanting to accept the truth. Be open. Be open-minded to the truth. Let the evidence seek in. Let the Scripture speak to you. Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. The Holy Spirit came upon her. God gave her the child. Matthew 1, verse 20 and 21, An angel appeared to Joseph, her soon-to-be husband, said, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And that son was Jesus Christ. An amazing, an amazing prophecy that was fulfilled in Scripture. There's a prophecy that before Jesus would come, there would come another messenger heralding or telling that Jesus would soon come. Isaiah 40 verse 3 said, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah prophesies of a messenger, a herald that would come, that would tell, that would prepare the way of the Lord, and tell that Christ would come. And who does that sound like from Scripture to you? A man named John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist came a little bit before Christ, and he went about preaching repentance, went about preaching the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 3, 2 through 4, it said, The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, how many people who were fake could have had somebody or known somebody was going to come before and precede them and tell about their coming and about what they were going to preach. Now, a skeptic might look at that and say, well, maybe Jesus and John the Baptist were in cahoots. You know, and they knew about that prophecy and they said, well, we need somebody to come before me to make it all work right, to make it all look right. 
Now, we're only covering four prophecies so far, but already, for Jesus to have been a fake, for Jesus to have been an imposter, there are a lot of... This would have been one of the biggest conspiracies ever for this to have worked, because there's a lot of moving pieces that have to make this thing go right. Him and John the Baptist would have had to have been in cahoots, and John the Baptist be willing to say, okay, you're going to be the guy, but sure, I'll be the herald that goes before you and tells about it to fulfill the prophecy. And that's just, it's just getting silly as you build upon each prophecy and each prophecy, all the things that would have had to go on if these things weren't true. And yet, that herald did come in the form of John. Zechariah 9 verse 9 prophesies that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the, a colt the foal of an ass. This was fulfilled in Matthew 21, 6 and 7. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and they set him thereon. Verse 9, And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this prophecy, this little prophecy about Jesus riding into Jerusalem, that easily, easily could have been forgotten. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem for his final entrance before he would go on to be killed, and knew that he would go on to be killed, instead of walking in, instead of going in in any other method of transportation, he rides in on this donkey, just as the prophet had foretold that he would. Now, a skeptic would look at that and say, well, yeah, but that's something you can control. You know, Jesus even told him to go get the donkey. But think about it, piece after piece, all of the moving parts to make this fit. How likely is it that each and every moment and each and everything they're doing just right and getting just right and remembering, oh yeah, we better get you that donkey to ride on to make sure that people looking back can say, oh, he really is who he is. Isn't it more likely that Jesus really was who he was? Isaiah prophesies that he would be killed for the guilt of others and on behalf of others. He said, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah prophesied that he would be put to death not for anything that he did of himself, not for any sin that he had committed, not for any iniquity that he had on his head, but that he would be put to death because of ours. Isn't that what we find recorded in the New Testament? Jesus was declared to be innocent by all who ought to have known. I want you to consider all of the people in Jesus' last days who came upon Him who pronounced Him just or innocent or unworthy of death. You consider Pilate who eventually condemned Him to death in Matthew 27, 24 said, This just person called Him just. You remember, He said, I find no fault in this man. Now He would bend to the will of the crowd and put Jesus to death, but He said He's just. He hasn't done anything wrong. King Herod, who Jesus was sent before by Pilate at one point, Pilate was saying, no, let, let Herod deal with it, right? In Luke 23, 15, Herod did nothing. He said, nor yet Herod. He did nothing worthy of death. Herod saw Jesus, talked to Jesus, wanted to see Jesus perform some kind of miracle. 
and finally said, eh, send him back to Pilate. He's done nothing worthy of death. The centurion who nailed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross, who was there at the crucifixion, who witnessed all of that that we spoke about last night, the power that happened there with the darkness and the quakes and all of that. And as all of that was happening around him, that centurion looked up at Jesus hanging on the cross and he said, certainly this was a righteous man. And he recognized that Jesus was dying not because of his own sin, but because of ours. Judas, the betrayer, the apostle that followed Jesus around for three years, listening to him teach and preach and watching all those miracles that he did, a friend to Jesus would eventually go on to betray him, led the Roman soldiers there into the garden, kissed Jesus on the, on the cheek or kissed Jesus, signifying that that was the man and led him to his death. But Judas himself, after Jesus died, went back and tried to give that money back that he had sold Jesus out for. He said, I have betrayed the innocent blood. Judas knew and recognized that Jesus was just, righteous, and innocent. And the thief on the cross, as Jesus was hanging there dying, you recall the conversation they had between each other. The thief said, this man hath done nothing amiss. Isn't it amazing that Isaiah prophesied that he would bear our iniquity, that he would be killed because of our sin? And every person that Jesus runs into in the New Testament story says, this man's righteous, he's just, he's done nothing wrong, yet he was killed for us. 1 Peter 2.24 said, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed." couple of more. There's some details at the crucifixion that are very, very interesting to consider. In Psalm 22, 16 through 18, the writer here said, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now in this prophecy, he's given some details about what would happen at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah. Interesting to note that at the point in which this was written, Roman crucifixion was still hundreds of years away from even having been invented as a form of putting people to death. So the piercing of hands and feet is very significant in this prophecy because that was not a form of punishment used at that time. Rome wouldn't come along for hundreds of years after that. And crucifixion, that method of putting people to death, wouldn't come along for hundreds of years. Yet the prophet said... His hands and his feet would be pierced, and they would part garments and cast lots. In Matthew twenty-seven thirty-five, we see as they crucified him, the soldiers around parted his garments and casted lots, fulfilling that prophecy that was spoken. In John twenty twenty-five and 27, you remember when Jesus appeared to them, and we have Thomas there doubting, and he says, unless I see the hands, unless I see his side, unless I see proof that Jesus really has resurrected, I'm not going to believe that he's really alive. And Jesus comes before him, remember, and he shows him, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. What was Jesus showing him? The holes in his hands from being crucified and hung there. Just like the prophecy in old times said would happen. One by one, 
you stack them upon each other. And to me, it builds an impressive case for Jesus Christ as the Messiah and for Scripture to be inspired. And the resurrection from the grave. Psalm 16, 9 and 10. We read this passage a little bit ago. Verse 10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. This was fulfilled in Acts 13, or we see it in Acts 13, 36. Uh, the passage there says, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. One by one, these prophecies, Jesus fulfilled every one of them and proved that He was who He said He was and proves that the Scriptures are true. Now, if Jesus was a fake, if the Scriptures are lying, if it's a story written to present this man as the Messiah, but He's not really the Messiah, He's not really that man, the Scriptures are just telling a fantastic story and it's all a lie then some amazing, spectacular things would have had to have happened. Now, number one, I believe we'd find an immense amount of evidence from other writers, from other people, saying all of that uh, stuff never happened. Or there would be a silence of any of of Jesus' existence or actions. And yet we looked at last night that there's not a silence. There's a, a ton of evidence that points to this. Could any ordinary man have caused himself to fulfill those eight prophecies that we looked at? Well, you certainly can't control your lineage. You can't control where you're born. You can't control some of those things. And all of that other stuff would have had to have just been perfectly executed and have been the best conspiracy theory ever to have worked and to have gotten such a following 2,000 years later to have people gathering on a Sunday morning all over the world praising and worshiping Him, and it would have had to have been one spectacular plan. What about by chance? Maybe Jesus, just by chance, He fit the criteria of these things. I want you to know there's about 60 major prophecies of Christ and 300 or so total prophecies that have to do with Him in all. The probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even eight such prophecies would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power, which is a 10 with 17 zeros following it. That is a big, large number. And it would literally be called 100 quadrillion. Don't ask me exactly how much that is, but it's a lot. You go and beyond millions and billions and trillions and all of that. This was uh, talked about and, and the math was done by Peter W. Stoner in Science Speaks in 1976, confirmed by the American Scientific Affiliation. Now, there's another illustration given in this that the chances that Jesus could have been, by chance, the Messiah, to fulfill even eight of these 60 major prophecies or 300 prophecies in all, is this spectacular mathematical odds. It would be like filling the entire state of Texas up two feet deep with silver dollars, marking one of them, putting an X there on the back of one of them, throwing it into the midst of it, swirling the whole thing up, blindfolding a guy, sending him out to the entire state of Texas and say, pick one, and it's got to be that one. You'd say there's no way. Texas is a big, big place. If you've ever driven across Texas, you can drive for 15 hours and still be in the same state. And that's what it would take for Jesus to have fulfilled these things by chance. It didn't happen, folks. And if you want to believe that Jesus just by chance fulfilled these things, that's your choice. But to me, it takes more faith to believe that 
than it does to believe the Scriptures are true. And I think the power of the Scriptures, the power of the message, ought to speak to you and tell you that these things are true. Charles Briggs, distinguished Hebrew scholar, said, In Jesus of Nazareth, the key of the Messianic prophecy of the Old Testament has been found. All its phases find their realization in His unique personality, in His unique work, and in His unique kingdom. The Messiah of prophecy appears in the Messiah of history. Jesus is who He said He is. The last thing I want to talk to you for a couple of minutes about this morning before we close, relating to the power of the message, is that not only is the message consistent, not only is the message prophetic, but the message is worth dying for. And to me, this is one of the most powerful testimonies for the truth of the Scripture, is the amount of people that have died for it and have given their lives for it. Jesus himself was willing to die for it. What imposter would have done that? But after Jesus, so many people have given their lives for the faith because they believed it, because they saw it, because they knew the power that that message of Jesus Christ holds. In Acts chapter 6, 9 through 11, we see a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen is the first recorded martyr of Christianity that we have in Scripture. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, There arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and the Syrians and Alexandrians, and of them the Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, if you recall uh, from earlier in Acts chapter 6, Stephen was a man that was selected by the people, many believe, to be one of the first deacons. One of the men to take care of the widows and the, the physical things of the early church. Stephen was a man the scriptures describe as a man full of faith and power and of the Holy Ghost. Stephen was a good, faithful Christian man. But Stephen, doing what Christians should be doing, was out preaching and out talking and discussing with people about Jesus Christ. And he discussed with some people, and they could not resist the wisdom with which he spoke. That means he won the discussion that they were, that they were talking about. He shared with them Jesus, and they couldn't refute what it is that he had to say. But instead of saying, hey, maybe you're right, maybe Jesus is the Messiah, they took men and they said, let's lie about Stephen. Let's put false witnesses up on the stand to say evil things about him so that we can get rid of this man who's preaching this gospel. In verse 12, it says, They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly upon him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? So here Stephen, this good faithful Christian man, who's had this uh, debate with these people about Jesus, they couldn't resist it, so they bring false witnesses up to say, he's sp- uh, spoken blasphemous words about Moses, about, about he's going to destroy this place, and they begin to tell lie after lie about Stephen. And the high priest is sitting up there, this, this council, and he looks down at Stephen and he says, are these things so? Well, you and I might be thinking, that's Stephen's opportunity to say, look, these are false charges, I didn't do any of these things, why are they accusing me of these things? But go read Acts chapter 7 sometime and look at Stephen's defense. His defense wasn't much of a defense in in 21st century terms that we'd think of it. In fact, he told them about their history. He told them about some of their ancestors. He told them about how time after time the prophets of God that were sent were persecuted. 
And he ended his speech with this in verse 51 of Acts 7. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Now Stephen is standing before this council who holds his life in in his very hands, in their hands. He has an opportunity to get out of it. If the message of Christ wasn't true, if all of it was a lie, if all of it was falsehoods, Stephen could have said, Hey guys, ha, huh, it, it's all a big joke. No biggie. You know, I'm just gonna, I'll stop talking about it. I'll get out of here. And any sane human being would have done that if they were just spreading falsehoods. But he wasn't. And he looked up at him and he said, You stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears said, you are the betrayers and murderers of the just one. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now here's a man willing to go to the end for Christ and for the message of the New Testament. Here's a man who was willing to speak the truth before a council of people who held his life in their hands. Here's a man who wasn't going to deny his faith because he believed in its power. He believed in the power of Christ. And he stood there as those people picked up stone after stone and hurled those stones at him. And as they struck him time after time, he took it. And before he drew his last breath on earth, he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. It reminds me of another statement that a dying man once said. You remember the words of Jesus when he hung there on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You going to tell me that Stephen wasn't sincere? You going to tell me it's all fake? It's all false? He believed that much in the falsehood that he was willing to die for it? I don't think so. You say, well, that's just a Bible story. That's just propaganda. That stuff didn't really happen. Yeah, it did. It happened, and much worse. Mentioned last night the Roman historian Tacitus, that first century non-Christian, in fact, showed a lot of spite towards Christian historians. He wrote this in his annals, book 15, verse 44. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisitive tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, those who didn't deny their faith. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses 
or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. It's not made-up stories. It's not just Bible propaganda. Christians from the time of Christ have been willing to give their life in gruesome, terrible ways because they would not deny their faith. Now, I ask you why they would do that. I ask you why they would allow themselves to be put up there as a a burning lamppost in the night to suffer that terrible death if it wasn't real and it wasn't true. And I ask you not to continue rejecting the inspiration of the Scripture just because you don't want to have to do what it says, but to recognize the power that it holds, that it's a message that's worth dying for, and it's a message that so many people have died for. And last thing I want to cover with you real quickly is the, the apostles. All but one of the apostles gave their life in one of the methods described by Tacitus. Philip was scourged and then crucified. Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified. Thomas was killed with a spear. Matthew was axed to death with a halberd, which is a half spear, half battle axe. James, the son of Alphaeus, was clubbed to death at the age of 94. Thaddeus was crucified. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Simon was crucified. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. And we see that story in Acts chapter 12. John, the beloved disciple that Jesus loved, John, was exiled to Patmos, the one apostle who was able to escape a violent death. Now, legend has it that he was thrown into a a burning cauldron of, of oil and came out unburned. That's what legend says. And then the emperor uh, exiled him to the island of Patmos to wait to await his death. John would eventually die of natural causes. Peter. Oh, Peter, the apostle that so many people can look at and, and, and kind of be familiar with and see themselves in, was crucified upside down by request because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus himself was. And Paul, who wrote half the New Testament that we have today, was beheaded by sword. And all of these men, and all of the countless men, women, and children throughout the ages since, have given their lives for Christianity because it's real, and it's true, and there's power in the message. And a skeptic, or a really hard-headed critic might say, yeah, but there's people in, in other religious... Uh, with other religious ideals that also die and give their life, right? There's the extreme terrorist cases that they do it for their religion and they die for it. The big difference to me is they're not dying for it. They're killing for it. They're killing themselves and other people for their supposed beliefs. And that's a lot different than all of the Christians throughout history who have done nothing to deserve what they got 
and yet took it and died because of their faith. Pascal, a French philosopher and mathematician, said, I prefer to believe those writers who get their throats cut for what they write. I think you and I should too. The men that brought us the scriptures that we have in the New Testament, they died for it. It's not falsehoods. It's not fake. It's the inspired word of God. Accept it as such, please. As we close, I'm going to read Acts 7 and 55 once again for you. This comes from the story of Stephen. And I wonder if you heard what was said here in this passage and really comprehended what it meant. It said, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Did you know this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus is standing at the right hand of God? It's the only place. Now, there's a lot of passages that talk about him sitting at the right hand of God, but this is the only one where he is standing. And I asked myself, why? Why is it that Stephen would have looked up and seen Jesus standing at the right hand? And I want to tell you why I think that it is. Scriptures don't say it, but this is what I think. I think Jesus knew what Stephen was about to do. I think Jesus knew Stephen was giving his life for him. And I think Stephen was allowed to have that vision, to look up and to see Jesus. And I think Jesus was standing as if to say, I'm here. I'm waiting. I'll be here when you come home. And I think about all the loved ones and the people in my life that have passed. And I hope they saw something similar. I hope they saw Jesus standing, welcoming them home. And I think it's a beautiful picture that awaits you and I as Christians. When we face our death, whenever that might be, Jesus is going to be there. And He's waiting. And He'll welcome you home if you'll just accept Him and live for Him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you have the opportunity to become one right now. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you're willing to confess that, you're willing to change the person that you've been into the person that Christ wants you to be, and you're willing to obey Him in baptism, you can have salvation today. You can be a part of the power of the message. If you're a Christian already, but you find yourself struggling in some way, we want to help you. We want to restore you to God this morning. If we can help you in any way, please come, sit on a front pew as we stand and sing.